I've been rock climbing with some friends. I wear these flexible athletic pants. They look like normal casual pants, but they're interwoven with the material they make basketball shorts out of, I think. I don't know. But I can pull them up to my nipples and do the splits in them, so. Anyway, I decided not to wear those pants to rock climb because they were dirty and also I wanted to change it up a little. I started climbing a route that I've been trying to figure out. And I reach my leg up to get to this one hold, and what do I hear but a massive, massive tear. My pants ripped what felt like in half. And to add insult to this injury, my underwear also had a hole in it. So this poor woman standing under me watching might have gotten more than she bargained for that day. And I realized I might need to buy new clothes and some new dignity. Welcome back to the Townies podcast, where we present original stories and a glimpse into the creative lives of the real people who wrote them. That was the amazing Noah Lashley and his pants (laughs) at the top of the episode. As always... I am your host, Kim Maxwell, and the stories that you are about to hear were developed in my writing and performance workshop in Ventura County, California. So let's, um, Megan, if you can come over here, and I'll Today, we are going to hear two different stories from one lovely storyteller, my dear friend and one of my longest-standing students, the talented Megan Berkfist. So I was to play Nurse Sonia, whose job it was to draw a blood sample from Dr. Patrick Drake, neurosurgeon. <laughs> or as I secretly called him, Dr. Hottie Von Beefcake. Howdy, Megan. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you for having me. I'm good, too. I didn't answer your question. (laughs) So I just said that I think that you're one of my longest-standing students, but I actually think you're the longest-standing student. How has your process as a writer evolved over the years? Like, what's changed in your work? Mm, Well, I think that because I've done it now quite a few times— I know that there are certain markers that I will hit, Um, like, I can't do this. I don't want to be in class. What am I doing here? I don't want to write today. Um, And then something will come out, and I'll get feedback from the group and maybe see that, oh, it wasn't so bad. (laughs) I don't hate this as much as I thought I did when I put it on paper. Mm. And, And then I trust I trust myself, and I trust you more. Um, I guess the biggest thing, I, I because I trust you in that mirroring way, I've learned to trust myself. And so I write, and then I know that I can get to the end of it, and I know that I can—I know that I, I just—I guess it's like a faith mm-hmm. that it will all work out— and um, and there's such a trusting, and I keep using that word, but it's so important, guidance that I get in the group and from you that um, I just know it's going to be okay. And it is actually fun now instead of being, like, dragged over glass like it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Yay. <clears throat> Find your voice and be dragged through the glass. <laughs> I'm just going to put that on the window next. <laughs> So in class, we do use a lot of prompts. Yes. Every single class, we do two yes. or three. Is there one that is a personal favorite that just always has something in it for you? Oh. I do. Hmm. Well, I do like. Uh, I'm sorry. That's okay. You remember, I don't know is the foundation of every great story <laughs> ever told. Every great scientific study ever embarked on, I don't know, is the beginning of everything. <laughs> so you just go ahead and, and don't know. Don't I, ap- I don't know. <laughs> Good answer. I love them all, and on different days, mm-hmm. 
I will choose different ones. And I love that you always bring new prompts. Oh. <laughs> um, let's see. Do you have a favorite memory of class or of one of your ensemble mates, something unfolding for somebody? Oh, Go again. ahead, say it out loud. Again, with the, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There are, st- I mean, we're talking almost 20 years of ensemble mate journeys. But what I do remember Mm -hmm. in every single class is the transformation that Mm. I get to witness in other people. And that, for me, is one of the most, sorry to be a little emotional, but one of the most beautiful things that I get out of class is watching other people grow Mm -hmm. and watching them go through their fears and, and just expand in a way that they don't get to in everyday life. Mm-hmm. In this safe yet compressed time period, and um, become more than they thought they were, mm-hmm. and um, oh, the compassion and the love in the group is so amazing. And I remember telling you that I had been thinking about why do I keep going back to class? Why maybe maybe this is enough? Maybe I don't need to. Mm-hmm. And then in the last session, I watched. Three people who'd never been in class before, and I watched them, and I knew that throughout the class and after the first night of performance that they would not be the same people they were before, that they could not not be changed by it. Mm. And I saw it on their faces, and I saw it in their bodies. And and that, even if I didn't get to write and perform, just to witness that is <laughs> such a gift. <laughs> Um, well, let me go back a, a little ways. Have you always wanted to be a, a performer, a writer, somebody who expressed themselves? I think as a small child, I always wanted it. I, I wrote plays. I mm-hmm. made all my neighbors and friends when I was a kid go into my garage, and I was the I was the writer, I was the main actor, and I was the director. <laughs> Basically, I just bossed everybody around as a little wow. kid. And, um, and I really loved that. And I wrote plays. And I had a wonderful aunt who used to take me to the community playhouse in Long Beach, mm-hmm. my Aunt Marie. Aww. And um, she really honored that part of me as a kid. And then when I got into my teenage years, I became very self-conscious and awkward. And and I still wanted that, but I I but I was not able to go after it or express it. And and then I thought there was a time when I wanted to be an L.A. person. And and then I realized, again, it's really the writing mm-hmm. and the performing and the self-expression that I was looking for, not the fame and the, you know, because that doesn't interest me mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it also takes a lot of energy. and. <laughs> <laughs> We spend a great deal of time in class listening and watching the work of others. How does that support you in your own work? Well, I think that when I listen and watch, and then I also hear your feedback, somehow through osmosis or however that happens, I now can better see and mm, view, look at, um, I can't think of the right word, Um, assess my own work Mm. through a different lens. And when I see someone up there and I see the fear that they're in or the, the, everything I see in them, I've seen in me. Mm -hmm. And so it really brings a oneness to um, the group and to making everything okay, you know, for whatever process I may then be going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can look, go, oh, yeah, that's, they're hitting the wall. Or, oh, they're, you know, they're not trusting themselves. And it's not a judgment. It's just an observation. Ah, I do that, too. Mm-hmm. I do that, too. Ooh, it's very, um, it's very unifying. <sighs> it was a fluke. <laughs> Someone at the hospital where I worked 
knew someone who knew someone who knew one of the directors on a soap opera. And there was an auction and a fundraiser. And then the next thing I know, I'm being offered a walk-on part on the Emmy Award-winning show, General Hospital. (laughs) It was my grandmother's favorite show. And I used to watch it with her every afternoon when I was little. And though I'm totally embarrassed to admit it, I had wanted to be on that show my entire life. <laughs> I mean, the Quartermains and the Webbers. It's like the Capulets and the Montagues. <laughs> Classic! Oh. So I did it. I put my best self forward and I drove down to Prospect Studios in Hollywood and had my walk-on part as a background nurse on GH. That's what they call General Hospital on the set. <laughs> And I had a great time. So imagine my overwhelming glee when Gwen from casting offered to put me on their regular rotation. Yes, yes, thank you so much. I had no idea what that meant. (laughs) So I Googled it when I got back to my car. They were going to bring me back. And they did. Over and over, over the next three months. And every time I would arrive on the set, Crystal, the AD, that's the assistant director, (laughs) she would just say, you go do your little nursey thing, Megan. Which is not as easy as it looks, by the way. Because I have to perform my nursely duties, you know, paperwork and phones and charting, while making sure that I am in no way blocking any of the principal actors from any of the four cameras that surround us, while simultaneously having pretend silent conversations with other hospital staff members. (laughs) And the silent part is really, really important, because if you accidentally speak out loud, then they will have to start the whole scene over, because speaking means that you are no longer background you are an under five. And an under five is what all background and ambiance players long to be. Because it means you have a line. (laughs) So when I got the call from Gwen in casting asking me if I were available for an under five, I could barely contain my excitement. Ooh, this was it. My big day. I drove down to the studio the following day to pick up my very own script with my very own name written across the top, and I quickly thumbed through and found my scene on page 74. I would be playing the role of Nurse 2. I decided to call myself Sonia. I had never had a name before, so I thought it was time. So I was to play Nurse Sonia, whose job it was to draw a blood sample from Dr. Patrick Drake, neurosurgeon. <laughs> or as I secretly called him, Dr. Hottie Von Beefcake. <laughs> so I am to take his blood to see if he has any remaining antibodies left over from the epidemic that broke out six months ago that he single-handedly cured before lapsing into a coma that he is just now awakening from. <laughs> I have two lines. Two lines that might seem insignificant or meaningless to the untrained eye. (laughs) But I am able to find the deep, rich subtext. (laughs) I spend the next week rehearsing and preparing, giving all my time and attention to this amazing opportunity that has been given to me. All done. I'll get right on that, doctor. All done. I'll get right on that, doctor. (laughs) All done. I'll get right on that, doctor. (laughs) I think I like the third one. (laughs) So I drove down extra early because I wanted to do all I could do to make sure that everything was perfect for my big day. I, I, I check in, I go to wardrobe, I pick up my fabulous purple scrubs, and then I head to the dressing room for some more rehearsing. <laughs> and then I heard the call. Items 20 to 24 to the stage, please. 20 to 24. That's me. I'm item 24. Ooh, breathe. <sighs> Use your tools, Megan. <sighs> So I hit the stairwell to the second floor running, eager to find my mark and get to work. 
And for the first time, I opened that stage door, feeling every inch the actor that I was, as I moved past this intricate labyrinth of of perfectly constructed, fabulously decorated half-rooms that make up the entire town of Port Charles, the small seaside community where the show takes place. (laughs) When I finally reached the hospital set, located at the far end of the stage, there were lots and lots of people there. The director, the assistant director, the lighting guys, props, hair, makeup, and so many others. And then, through the crowd, I see him. Dr. Hardy Von Beefcake, lying in his hospital bed. Ooh, yummy. <laughs> Everything started to happen really fast at that point, and the prop guy brings me my phlebotomy kit, stuffed full of gauze and tape and alcohol wipes and vials of fake blood. And then he hands me this super cool yellow syringe with a retractable needle, so it will actually look like I'm going into the vein and extracting blood. They call it Hospital realism. <laughs> he explains that they'll be starting the scene with a close-up of Dr. Hottie's arm, the needle, and my hands. How cool is that? I practice with the prop a few times, and then he puts it back in the kit, and we're ready for our first rehearsal. Places, places, everyone! I take my place site, place at the bedside of Dr. Patrick Drake, neurosurgeon. <laughs> Oh, rehearsing in five, four, three, two. This is it. My first big rehearsal. Maybe there really is a future for Nurse Sonia. I grab the syringe from the kit with one hand, and while holding Dr. Hottie's arm with the other, I plunge the needle into his extremely protruding man vein. Ah, ah! He jerks his arm suddenly away from me. For a split second, I think he's kidding. And then I see the blood. Wait, the blood? I wasn't sure what was happening. Someone grabbed the syringe from my hand. People started gasping and scurrying around. Chaos was ensuing. Pandemonium breaking out. And I was in a surreal slow-motion bubble watching it all happen. She grabbed the wrong syringe! Call the nurse! The real nurse! This has never happened before! (laughs) At that point, my inner Pollyanna nurse had taken over and I'd opened an alcohol wipe and I started wiping away the blood and I just kept wiping and wiping thinking that if I could wipe it away maybe I could wipe away this whole experience <laughs> or, or I could realize that I'd fallen asleep in the dressing room and, and this was just a daymare that I was going to awaken from at any minute but it was real it was as real as that sharp pointed needle I'd just stabbed into his arm <laughs> someone asked me if I was okay And I thought to myself, I'm either going to cry or vomit. (laughs) But I didn't either. I just smiled lamely, nodded. I was completely and totally stupefied. And then I heard someone say, what was a real needle doing in there anyway? And then a chorus of, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You know it's not your fault, right? But I didn't know. After the panic dies down, we eventually start the scene again, and I jokingly poke the syringe in my head a couple of times. <laughs> in an aw- awkward attempt to lighten the mood and reassure everyone. I think the scene went fine, though I have almost no recollection of it. I do remember feeling how ironic my first line was. All done. <laughs> like my self-esteem. Like my ability to form sentences. Like my confidence. Like my acting career. <laughs> All done. When the scene was over, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. I, I made a beeline for the exit, and this beeline turned into this frantic zigzag as I stumbled endlessly through set after set. The disco turned diner where Luke raped Laura. The backyard where the aliens landed last February during sweeps. All in this desperate attempt to escape this hellish ordeal with some shred of dignity or grace. As I finally reached the stage door, a hand reached out and opened it for me. And attached to that hand was an arm with a small circular Snoopy Band-Aid on it. You're pretty good at that. Got me right in the vein. Good job. 
And then he winked at me. <laughs> Dr. Hottie Von Beefcake winked at me. Ah, <laughs> oh, a small act of kindness that was the perfect ending to the roller coaster ride that was my big day. This version of My Big Day was performed by Megan Berkfist in November 2018. Hey, Townies. It's your producer, Lily Brown, here coming at you live. Um, Please join us this summer in Monte Castello di Vibio, which is in Umbria, Italy. We're doing our first Townies workshop abroad. I have been brushing up on my Italian. Io sono una mela. I am an apple. You're going to use that often. (laughs) È un uccello. It is a bird. La mosca è nel bicchiere. The fly is in the glass. <laughs> I hope you'll join us. It's going to be a blast. We're going to be doing two weeks of writing and performance workshop stuff, drinking wine, eating all the food, and it's going to be super fun. Uh, we're going to do a performance in a 400-year-old recently restored opera house, June 30th to July 15th. Learn more information at kimmaxwellstudio.com slash retreats. Io ho una fragola. (laughs) I have a strawberry. (laughs) Hello, everybody. This is Ted Lennon. Water and Bones is a love song. It's one of my first... It's the feeling you get when your stomach starts getting butterflies and you start dropping things and can't think about anything else but the person you're falling in love with. Well, I've been working for days straight. Well, you know what I need. Baby, I just need a break. I broke some dishes yesterday. And you've been scrambling like a I know what you need Baby, you just need some sleep Haven't slept for two weeks So how long has it been? Cause my sense of time's all been out of shape can learn more from a loss than a win Cause don't you know we're mostly just water and bones We're just water Never hurt me 
That was Water and Bones by Ted Lennon from his album Helio. So I remember, by the way, that was amazing. That's an incredible piece made. <laughs> it feels really cruel to always be laughing at your demise, but it is, it's, it's funny, <laughs> Megan. Um, but I remember <laughs> that the day, oh my God, that you called me from the parking lot of where you were shooting General Hospital and you were sobbing hysterically. Like in the beginning, I didn't even understand why you were calling me. I thought you'd been in a car accident or something, but you were calling me to tell me that this horrible thing had happened. And 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 I just remember sitting there very quietly and listening, thinking, wow, this is going to be a really good piece. <laughs> and you busted me. You totally busted me on that. Um, but the truth is, most of the material that you write in class ends up in a comedic form, but it doesn't start off that way. Do you, um, what does the process of converting something that's very traumatic and painful into something comedic, what does that do for you? I think that it is one of the most cathartic things that I have ever undergone. And um, I think that because it seems like, as you say, everything I've written has been about something that started out tragic <laughs> and then turned out to be also comedic. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I now go into tragic situations <laughs> with a knowing <laughs> that there will be a comedic ending to it <laughs> somewhere along the line. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's really, you know, going through something right now and I'm thinking, oh, this might be a great ending for some piece I'm working on. <laughs> so when awful things happen in life, as they tend to do, what or who inspires you to keep going? Wow. I, I I don't know that I have an answer hmm. for that. I I want to say I just don't know. I honestly don't know. I would I, I want to say my history mm -hmm. and knowing that I've been through a lot mm -hmm. as have so many others that I've gotten to witness that I guess it's like, <laughs> this is so silly, but it reminds me of a Harry Potter story. <laughs> Am I showing my geekiness now? Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you just you super I'm let it Harry slip Potter there, Megan. Geek. <laughs> but there was a time when he saw something happen, and he saw this Patronus, and, and then he knew he could do something because he'd done it before. Because he'd already done it. And now sometimes I know I can do it because I've already done it. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it gets me through. I mean, I have my mom, of mm -hmm. course, who I adore. And she gets me through so many things. Mm -hmm. oh, but I also know that I've been through a lot and I've survived. And I'm so grateful for that. And I don't take it for granted. Mm -hmm. um, but that I can, I can get through it. And I have a great support system in my life. I have you. I have my family. I have dear, dear friends. Mm -hmm. um, I have my lovely friend, Doug, who also inspires me all the time and yeah. helps me. Um, yeah. So I don't know what kind of answer that was. but <laughs> I thought that that was a delightful um, and magical <laughs> Hogwarts kind of an answer. And I appreciate it greatly. Um, so you are one of my students that is working towards a full-length one-person show. When did you realize that you wanted to have a full-length one-person show? Well, I realized it. Well, it was suggested to me quite a few years ago. Mm -hmm. But I realized that I really wanted it about three years ago. Mm -hmm. That it was something that, even if it was just performed once, just for a small group in your studio, mm -hmm. that it was something that I wanted to complete, not for any other reason than um, personal, you know, a personal reason of just completing something and 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 having all my little stories <laughs> that are so 
silly when I look at them sometimes and yet so have helped me along in my life and um, have been just a real a real nourishing gift to just have them all together performed. And it scares me a little. And, and, and I learn in class and from you that if it scares me, it doesn't mean not to do it. Sometimes it means to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, not everything, of course. I'm no, not, not the rattlesnakes that. in your backyard. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but but to, um, to complete it and to, because um, I do enjoy performing now mm-hmm. and I do enjoy writing. And I do enjoy working with you so much. Um, Dry mouth, rapid heartbeat, nausea, shortness of breath. Yep, I was definitely in the middle of a full-blown anxiety attack. (laughs) I was brought back to reality by the sound of a loud male voice. If you should get trapped underwater in a hole, just curl up in a ball and she'll spit you right out. If, if you should get dumped out and separated from your group by the raging current, just relax. You're probably going to make it. <laughs> well, yeah, I was at the Kern River, a rafting trip I had happily agreed to take. I mean, I don't even know how that happened. I remember my friend Wendy mentioning a trip she was planning, and the next thing I hear is my voice saying, I want to go! I want to go! I think I imagined it to be some kind of a Six Flags log jammer experience. Reminiscent of a birthday party I'd had when I was a kid. That idea quickly faded when my co-pilot, Jody, my friend from New Zealand, and I were rapidly approaching Kernville and were greeted by a helpful and informative sign that keeps passersby apprised at how many people have actually died in the Kern since 1968. 264. After some not-so-quick math, I came up with the number seven. That is the average number of people who die in the current each year. I asked Jody if she thought that sounded like a lot. I mean, it did to me. (laughs) She said, darling, most of those deaths were probably just related to drunken stupidity. Well, I hadn't had a drink in over 13 years, and I still wondered how many were maybe caused by regular stupidity. (laughs) It could be you, Megan. Oh, I forgot to tell you. There were three of us in the car. Jody, me, and my inner critic, Mega. (laughs) She's with me most of the time, you know, to point out my uh, mistakes and negate any good feelings I might have about myself. My Buddhist Jungian Gestalt therapist tells me that I should just let her dialogue and then thank her for sharing. (laughs) Thanks. So the man, Rooster, still lecturing. If you should become a swimmer, that's what we call people who involuntarily end up in the water. Keep your feet up. Foot could get caught in the rocks and break your leg or drown you. Watch out for strainers, large branches underwater that reach out and grab you, rip you to shreds. <laughs> I felt dizzy. My knees were weak, and I remember being grateful I had my oar in my hands for support. This is not a ride at Disneyland. This is extremely dangerous, and there will be carnage. <laughs> When the pandemonium hits, go with it. Embrace it. Now let's get out there and have a great time. (laughs) Pandemonium? Carnage? What the fuck was I doing here? (laughs) So we headed down to the boats, and although there were some who were skipping and hooting and high-fiving each other, there were a few like me, who visually embodied the phrase, dead man walking. (laughs) There were over 30 in our group, six people to each raft, plus one highly experienced, well-trained guide. I nervously looked around for mine, wondering if it would be yet another militant barnyard animal. (laughs) And then, like a vision, she appeared. This beautiful, golden-haired goddess named Bridget 
who navigated the rivers of the world, including Africa, for over 15 years. She was sweet and gentle and reassuring. She saw my fear immediately and told me in the most loving way that the Khan is a kind and benevolent teacher, Megan, and if she should decide to choose you to baptize you in her waters, <laughs> it would be an honor and a blessing, and it would immediately transform you into river royalty. <laughs> river royalty? I like the sound of that. <laughs> She then taught us the simple commands we would be using over the next two days as we traveled an approximate 23 miles down the current. Forward, forward please. This command tells us to put our oars in the water and row so that we might go forward. <laughs> How easy is that? I was beginning to feel so much better and the water seemed pretty mellow. And besides, I was a strong and competent woman who had overcome obstacles much greater than a silly old river. Hello, leukemia, bone marrow transplant, alcoholism. I had laughed in the face of adversity. <laughs> well, maybe not laughed. <laughs> there had been a lot of crying and a lot of therapy. But I was still here. I was a strong and competent woman. That would be my mantra for the trip. So then we ran some class two and some class three rapids, and, and they were a little challenging, but I seemed to be doing okay. And whenever I'd start to doubt myself, I would first say my mantra, I am a strong and competent woman. And then I would focus on Bridget. <laughs> she had traversed the waterways of the globe and had not only survived, but thrived through it all. Maybe we were not so very different, Bridget and me. I mean, she was tall, I'm tall, and she's thin, and I'm thin. If she could do it, I could do it. Strong, competent women on the kern, with a few men thrown in here and there for decoration. <laughs> we set up camp in the mid-afternoon at a lovely site and Rooster shouted out Hey, anyone wants to go for a swim? Come line up over here Great way to feel the pull of the current Jump in, swim out around that tree Avoiding those strainers And curve back in, meet up on the other side Okay, go, go, go one by one, as if parachuting from a plane for the first time, I watched as those in front of me jumped into the water. I was revved up and ready, thinking that this might actually count for a little mini baptism. River royalty, here I come! And I jumped in. Woo! I felt the strength of this awesome river. She was amazing, and, and the current was strong, and I felt the dance of the water as it enveloped my body and moved me with an all-encompassing force I had not felt before. It was powerful and serious and exciting. I kept my eye on Deborah, the strong, competent woman who had gone before me, and she had began to curve back in and head towards the shore. So I began to curve back in and head towards the shore. And I began to curve back in and head towards the shore. And I began to curve back in and head towards the shore, but something was terribly wrong. I mean, I was swimming, or more accurately, I was making swimming motions, <laughs> but nothing was happening. I watched Deborah make progress towards the shore, moving downriver and towards the shore at the same time. I was just going downriver. Swim, swim, swim! I, I could hear Rooster yelling. In my head, I screamed, I'm trying! But there wasn't enough breath for actual words. So I tried, and I tried with everything I had. I tried to swim to that shore, and as my mind was intently battling with itself, trying to make sense out of this unimaginable situation, I scanned the horrified faces of those on the shore looking for Bridget. For, for a look or a nod to let me know that I was going to be okay. And then when I finally saw her, there was no wink, no reassuring smile, just a look of sheer terror as she watched me miss the mark completely and be carried downstream. Swam, swam, swam! Brewster was still yelling as he jumped in after me. 
Are you okay? I think I nodded. <laughs> okay, we'll try to get out over here. Keep your feet up. Oh yeah, all those warnings. If only I'd been listening. Okay, looks like we're not gonna make this next eddy. Current's too strong. Gonna have to go through this next rapid. <laughs> through a rapid? In this Rice Krispie box of a life jacket? <laughs> This can't be happening. And just like that, we were in it. It was loud like thunder, and there were waves and whitewater, and it seemed to be pulling me in a thousand different directions, pulling me under again and again. And each time I would come up for air, another wave would slap me in the face, and I would choke and cough and gasp for breath over and over. So this was it. This was God showing me the truth. I was not a strong and competent woman. I was weak. I was the weak link in the chain of life. And now, by the course of natural selection, I was about to be plucked from humanity in true Darwinian survival of the fittest fashion because I was weak. It was then that I heard the voice. Oh, Megan. You're so stupid. <laughs> and you are going to die. It was both depressing and oddly reassuring to know that even in the last moments of my life, when I was taking my very last breath, my inner critic would be there for me. <laughs> for <laughs> one final performance, reminding me one more time that I am stupid, that I'm not enough, and that I can't even die right. <laughs> oh, and she pulls me under again. But it's different this time. It's deeper, and it's colder. And I feel surrounded. Oh my God, I'm actually going to die. No, 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 no. No, 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 this is not how it ends. I survived leukemia. I woke up from a coma. And I did not take the marrow from my sister's bones to leave it at the bottom of the stupid Kern River. You let go of me, you bitch! <laughs> you are not a kind and benevolent teacher. And I reach, and I pull, and I fight, and I fight, and I make my way to the surface of the water. And the current slows for a moment, and I swim, and I swim, and I swim, and I miraculously find myself face down on the shore. Seconds later, rooster washes up. <laughs> inches from my face, and manages a breathless... Are you okay? <laughs> <sighs> I roll over on my back. Feel the sun on my face. Of course I am. I'm the queen of the river. <laughs> <laughs> This recording of Queen of the River was performed by Megan Berkvist in May 2018. All right, townies, pull out your pen and paper or your computer or whatever you fancy. It's free writing time. I am going to give you another prompt, and as usual, feel free to pause this and take five minutes or more to keep your pen or your keys moving. Don't edit, don't judge, just... Right. Today's prompt, what is the story that you or someone in your family tells over and over again? Why does that one keep coming up? What about that story stands out to you? Be as specific as you can. And don't forget to type and save your genius. Thank you for uh, both drowning and stabbing people over the course of the last half an hour. You know, it was wonderful for me. <laughs> I love to relive it over and over again. Did you come to class, like, ready to write this story? Or was there some, was there a prompt that incited you to come forth with this <laughs> adventure? Well, I came to class the week after this 
this incident mm-hmm. um, with a large gash on my leg, oh, and I had to keep my leg elevated in class <laughs> um, from this from this story. Mm-hmm. That was actually a part of the story that didn't get written mm-hmm. because it was like Queen of the River Part Du. <laughs> so, how has this theme of near death experience? Uh, experiences uh, manifested or surfaced in your other material? Well, I, when I was younger, when I was 17, I was diagnosed with leukemia, mm-hmm. which I guess would be my first, my first near-death experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that event changed my life. Mm-hmm. And then there were many other personal events that that changed it as well, and and I guess it's I guess it's that being that close to something, and not to not to glorify it, but mm-hmm. but being that close to oh, we have deaths in our lives every day, whether it's little deaths of of, of relationships or of friends, or true mm-hmm. deaths, or but I just think that it. It makes me so grateful to be alive. Mm. So I, I guess that would be the theme in I want to be here. Mm. I want to be alive. I want to experience all the emotions. You know, I want to and 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 it brings me back to class is that class is a place where I get that and I get to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, let us shift our focus to the wall, because over the course of our many years to, uh, together, I have seen you hit the wall a number of times. Um, in this piece, you actually gave the wall a voice, Mega, your mm. inner critic. Mm. Um, how has your opinion changed in terms of like your inner critic and what its job is or purpose is in your life? Well, I learned early on in in working with you that um, my critic, who was my worst enemy, um, has become one of the voices that gives me some of the best material that I can write about (laughs) because it is (laughs) ever-present and constantly chattering. And, um, And right there. At the very end. <laughs> yes. Even when one is close to dying, the critic will be there with something to say. And um, that is just uh, such good material. And that's a line I got from you. Not accurate, but really great material. <laughs> and um, I remember in early in class, years and years ago, when I couldn't even be on stage and and speak, mm-hmm. you just had me do an inner dialogue of me and my critic. And you would switch the lights. Dark lights meant critic talk. Bright lights meant Megan talk. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the critic is there, but the critic is... Um, and it's helped me in my personal life as well. Mm-hmm. Because, as I said, ever-present voice um, saying negative things... And to be able to identify that mm-hmm. is of great value. Mm. So, do you have any words of wisdom for others who are thinking about taking a leap into the frightening territory of expressing themselves, possibly for the first time? Anything at all? I would say, well, first I'd just say, if you have an inkling to do it, do it. <laughs> and if you have an inkling and you think that was an insane voice in your head and why in the world would you ever want to do that, do it. <laughs> because it will give you rewards that you cannot imagine. It is, I keep using the word expand. It is so expansive mm-hmm. and it is so worth the fear. And you will be held through the whole process you know, and you will meet amazing people. And and Kim, even if you think, I don't have anything to say, everyone has something to say. Everyone has yeah. stories. And all stories are, are worth hearing. And when I look at people up there for the first time, for one, it's just magical. And two, 
their stories are amazing. And, and it's a process, and you have 10 weeks to develop this process and um, develop your work, you know. Um, do you have any advice for people, just in general? I don't know. <laughs> um, advice. I, I very often or seldom give advice. <laughs> um, but I would say find a way to be glad to be here, whatever it takes, because being alive is, is, is a worthy goal. <laughs> and I, I, I always write this on my birthday, on whether it's Facebook or I, I just put it in my own home, um, there's an Albert Einstein quote, a growing older is a privilege denied to many. And it is my favorite quote ever because I'm just so glad to be here to get to experience all this. So I would say keep breathing, <laughs> keep going. It's worth it. Thank you so much, Megan Burfist. Thank you, Kim. I love you forever and back. I love you. I'm from here. Here's the story. We are the Townies, and we are back every other Tuesday with original stories and a glimpse into the creative lives of the real people who wrote them. I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio and the Townies, Inc., and we are in the business of connecting people one story at a time. The Townies podcast is produced by Lily Brown, Ken Eros, and me, with studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. Thank you to today's storytellers and music contributors, all of our donors and listeners and supporters, and to our board of directors, and to the people who inspire us and keep us moving forward every day. Molly Allison, Woody Brown, Cleo Charpentier, Patrick Lashley, Asa Larmonth, Olivia Lures, Amaury Sogrand, April Theriault, Marissa Oots, and so many more. This podcast has been made possible in part by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai. And a big shout out to our corporate sponsor, Robobank. And you can find out more about us and today's storytellers at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. Isn't it like wildly appropriate water and bones for your drowning expedition? Perfect. I like to think of it as the soundtrack to Megan Burkfist's demise <laughs> at the bottom of the current. Thank you, Ted. <laughs> <laughs>